right in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, describes God creating a woman named Eve as a helper to a man named Adam. And we see so many male heroes of the faith who not only have multiple wives, but have multiple female concubines, servants of the man, available for physical pleasure. Not just Solomon, but Abraham, David, Jacob, they all had multiple wives and concubines. Jump to the New Testament and read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35, which says, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Paul the Apostle says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. What does this actually mean? Remain quiet? Submit? That even an accomplished, well-educated woman is disgraceful if she speaks up in church? How do we make sense of Bible verses like this, which certainly seem to disqualify and demean women? The question we're wrestling with today is, is the Bible anti-woman? But the role and place of a woman was not a controversy in God's original design. In the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, when God dwelt with humanity in perfect communion, he created men and women distinct but equal. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, scripture says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this idea of the equality between men and women continues in the next chapter, the more specific, detailed account of, of God's creation. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Scripture says, The Lord God said, looking at Adam, the first man, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And continuing in verse 20, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Now, sometimes when we read that verse 18, we see the word helper, and that might trip us up, some of us, because we think, well, was the woman solely created to be a helper, to be a servant to the man? But actually, the Hebrew word, the, the original language that Genesis was written in, the Hebrew word for helper is this word, ezer. And it's actually a word used more than 20 times throughout the Old Testament, and it's most often used to describe God himself. That means that women cannot be inferior to men no more than God could be inferior to anyone or anything. And the woman as a helper is actually an incredible role of support, and it's one that God himself is described to hold. 
And Eve was originally designed to be partners with the man. And men and women each uniquely, yet distinctively, shared in and reflected the image of God. Let's even look at the word rib that we see in verse 21. Uh, the Hebrew word for rib is tesela. So not Tesla, but tesela. And it's actually translated for us as rib, but another way it can be translated is the word side. And so um, it's actually a word often used in architecture to describe opposing sides of the same structure. So for example, in the book of Exodus, um, the word to say lot, the plural of this word, is used to describe the two sides of the Ark of the Covenant or the altar. So structurally, it was important for those items to have equal but opposing sides. And relationally, men and women were designed to be equal, side-by-side side partners in the Lord. Matthew Henry, an 18th century minister and theologian, he reflects on this passage in Genesis 2 and describes it like this. The woman was not made out of the man's head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. God's intention was for men and women to have a relationship of mutuality. So then what happened? Why in the Bible do we come across stories of women being mistreated or cast aside or sometimes harmed? Where do we get this question about women's roles in the church about is the Bible anti-women? Well, God's original design was changed by humanity's sin. In the next chapter, Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they disobeyed and did not trust God. They sinned and their sin earned humanity separation from God and his holiness. God is so holy that he can have no part in sin. And so the cost of our sin, the payment, the wage of our sin was death was eternal separation from God. And the consequences are that vast and inescapable. It's, it's kind of like if you have a, a nice blank sheet of paper. This is something that is meant and created to be designed on, to be used creatively. So with a beautiful sheet of paper like this, we can write, we can color, we can draw, we can even fold it into something beautiful. But if this piece of paper gets damaged, maybe it gets crumpled up, maybe it gets destroyed, then it actually becomes ruined. And even when we try to rescue it, even as we try to unfold it, it's damaged and we can't use this same piece of paper in the way that it was originally designed and intended for. And that is what sin did to God's original design. Nothing functioned in the way that God originally created it to, including our relationships. And there was nothing we could do as hard as we tried to smooth out the edges. There was nothing that we could do in our power to restore what God had originally had planned. So we see that humanity's sin shifts a culture from mutuality and equality between men and women to one that is patriarchal. 
there's a struggle for power and control. And we see that the moment that God confronts Adam and Eve about their sin, um, Adam blame shifts Eve and blames the sin on her. And then Eve goes and blame shifts and blames it on the serpent. And there's pride and selfishness that leads to a sinful culture of hierarchy, of polygamy, of chauvinism, disrespect, where there once was none of that. Women were treated as property with a lack of dignity and a lack of rights. And this was our world so far from God's original design. But the good news is that even though humanity was broken and our world and culture was broken by sin, we were living so separated from God, God did not abandon us. Our brokenness actually broke God's heart. And by his grace, by his grace, God chose to work through time in order to redeem and restore what was lost by sin. And in the rest of the Old Testament, we see that despite this patriarchal world that developed apart from God, God used women. There are brilliant examples of the ways that God used women for his plan of redemption. There are women like Miriam and Sarah and Esther who God elevated to be prominent leaders over all of Israel, over families, over governments, as well as seemingly ordinary or unqualified women like Ruth and Rahab, God used to demonstrate his faithfulness and to fulfill his larger purposes. For example, even more specifically, we see Deborah and we find Deborah's story in Judges chapters four and five. And Deborah, we learn, is a judge and she is in on the action. She's a military leader leading the charge for all of Israel to go to war against the Canaanites. And we get no sense in Deborah's story that Deborah is stepping into roles that were not originally intended for her. Actually, we learn that Deborah is a prophet and prophets were seen as mouthpieces for God. And as a mouthpiece for God, Deborah leads Israel and even encourages the men around her who are going to battle with her. In Judges chapter 4, verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, who's one of her fellow male leaders in this fight, and he's fearful of the battle ahead. And Deborah says, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And after Deborah's encouragement, Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. See, God did not see or treat women the way the world did. Instead, in order to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden, God saw, loved, and used women powerfully all throughout the Old Testament, and he didn't stop there. Eventually, as the story of the Bible continues, God chose to use two women to help bring Jesus himself into the world, and those two women are Elizabeth and Mary. In the Gospel of Luke, it is these two women whose story gets highlighted in the events before Jesus' birth. In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 35, the angel answers Mary, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. 
for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled to me. See, Mary and Elizabeth's faith and obedience to God exemplify for all of us what it means to be a servant of the Lord. And now let's welcome up Pastor Tomiko to share about how Jesus treated women himself so that he could continue his great plan of redemption with men and women serving him in the Lord side by side. Thank you, Pastor Claire. Well, do you remember the show, The Little Rascals? Uh, Some of the characters were Spanky or Alfalfa and Darla. Um, Well, if you don't know this show, it was an old show about a group of neighborhood children and all of the little adventures that they would get into. And the storylines were always written in good fun, but they often were about the boys playing tricks on the girls or the boys trying to keep the girls out of their club or their clubhouse. Uh, Well, the, the name of the boys club, and there was a sign on their door was the He-Man Women Haters Club. And they had a pledge that they would recite every time they came together in the clubhouse. And this is the pledge. I, a member in good standing of the He-Man Women Haters Club, do solemnly swear to be a He-Man and hate women and not play with them or talk to them unless I have to and especially never fall in love. And if I do, may I die slowly and painfully and suffer for hours or until I scream bloody murder. Now, how is that for a club pledge? Now, it seems funny when we recite it today, but people often outside of the church have a perception that Christianity is an old boys club where no girls are allowed. And they're led to believe that this is how the Bible represents women. But we're here to tell you today that this is not at all how God feels about women. And Jesus himself transformed the cultural norms about women that were at place in the first century. You see, Jesus entered the world at a time when women were treated inferior to men in all aspects of life. Girl children were under the authority of the patriarch of the home, their father, their grandfather. In marriage, men held all the advantages. Women were the property of their husbands. They had no rights. Women couldn't enter into contractual agreements, so they couldn't divorce their husbands. But on the other hand, a husband could divorce his wife for little or no cause. This left women vulnerable physically, financially, and emotionally. The first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote, the woman says the law is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive. And then a common rabbinical prayer from the time read, praise be to God that he has not created me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Yet Jesus challenged this attitude towards women. He honored women and he treated them equally. We see that Jesus taught women and he included them as his followers. He was a rabbi, which means teacher, yet rabbis were not allowed to teach women or were encouraged not even to speak to women. But we read in Luke chapter 10 how Jesus went to the home of his good friends, his good friend Martha, her sister Mary, and her brother Lazarus. They lived in Bethany. And starting in verse 38, we read that Jesus came into the home of Martha. 
She had a sister named Mary, but Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. And Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she went to Jesus and she says, Lord, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. But Martha, Jesus answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. You see, Jesus was teaching Mary, which would have been extremely controversial for her to sit amongst men at the feet of a rabbi. Yet he didn't chastise her for doing this. Instead, he commends her for wanting to learn. He honors her for choosing what is better. Mary chose to be with Jesus, to listen to his teachings in order to become like him. Also in Luke's gospel, we see that, that he specifically names women who were among his traveling companions. In Luke chapter 8, we read that he lists off the names and mentions those that were traveling with Jesus. He says the 12 were with them. And starting in verse 2, we read that there was also Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and Susanna among others. He says these women were helping to support them out of their own means. And then we see that Jesus accepted women that were rejected. Women were marginalized due to many things, but especially due to physical conditions. At that time, some, um, somebody who was bleeding, um, if you came in contact with them, then you also were considered unclean. And in Mark chapter 5, we read an account of how Jesus came in contact with a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And we read that Jesus was walking through this crowd and there are people kind of pushing in all around him, trying to get to him. And this woman who had this, we call the issue of blood, this, she was bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all her money on doctors and she had only grown worse. But she believed that if she could just get to Jesus, just touch his clothes, she would be healed. She makes her way through the crowd, which would have violated customs at the time that she was even in this crowd. And then even, even more um, d d uh, catastrophic is that she went to touch Jesus. But she does that. She touches him. She does it discreetly. But immediately in verse 29, the bleeding stopped and she felt her body freed from suffering. And so Jesus feels that the power went out of him. And he says, who touched my clothes? His disciples say, Jesus, how can you ask that? There's people pressing in all around you. But verse 32 says, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her in verse 34, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You see, Jesus responded to her with grace and love. He doesn't condemn her for being unclean. He doesn't shame her publicly, nor is he ashamed of this interaction with her. He calls her daughter. She is the only person in the New Testament to be called daughter by Jesus. Before this, she was alone, ostracized, rejected by society. And now she's been brought into the family of God. And Jesus declares to the whole crowd that she has been healed because of her faith. And he blesses her and tells her to go in peace.
And then finally, we see that Jesus chose women to be the first witnesses to his resurrection. In all four gospels, all four accounts of the life of Jesus, of his death, his burial, his resurrection, all four writers mention the women that were the first witnesses to his resurrection. In Matthew chapter 28, Matthew writes, uh, uh, he writes the names Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who we believe was the mother of James and John, and that they went to the tomb. But they, when they got to the tomb, there was an, a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord appeared and tells the women not to be afraid, that Jesus has risen from the dead. And then the angel instructs them to quickly go and tell the disciples. And in verse 8 we read, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he says to the women. They, and they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus could have appeared to anyone else, but he chose these women. He could have appeared to his followers, male followers, but he chose to appear to the women. Um, there's a wonderful that professor that I sat under um, when I was in seminary at Fuller, uh, Dr. David Scholler. He was an American Baptist minister and leader in the American Baptist denomination and wrote extensively about what the Bible says about women and the role of women in the church. And he writes, Jesus's inclusion of and ministry to and through women within his own life and teaching were a powerful witness to the early church of the partnership of of women and men within its membership and ministry. You see, Jesus treated women with value, equality, and respect. He recognized that women were made in the image of God and in just the same way as men. And by doing this, Jesus set the foundation for the equality of men and women in sharing the gospel and building the church. Now we're going to look at some challenging passages of scripture that address biblical marriage and women serving in the church. So let's welcome Pastor Eric as he comes. Thank you so much, Pastor Tomiko. And, and Pastor Claire and Pastor Tomiko have done an outstanding job laying out a theological framework for God's original design for men and women to be equal. And the ways that God has used uh, men and women in the Old Testament and in the New New Testament to advance his purposes. And so it's clear from their teaching that, that God and the Bible are not anti-women. And, and so the question I want to wrestle with is what do we do? How do we make sense of the inequality in the Bible? So how do we look at some of those passages and, and make sense of them? And, and if, you're a, if you're a critic of Christianity or, or you're an honest seeker of truth, then maybe you've asked yourself these three questions. And I hope this is helpful for you. The first question is this. If you believe in biblical marriage, then how do you explain polygamy? How do you explain polygamy showing up in the Bible? Well, it's true. There is polygamy in the Bible. Genesis chapter one, chapter two, as Pastor Claire addressed, talk about God creating men and women in his image. In Genesis three, sin enters the story of the world. And by Genesis four, Cain has already murdered his brother. And then we meet Lamech, who's of the descendant, one of the descendants of Cain. He has murdered someone and he has taken 
taken for himself two wives. In fact, by Genesis 4, things are so bad that this is how Genesis 4 ends. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That sin had begun to wreak so much havoc in culture, even amongst God's created people, that they were crying out to the Lord. Dan Kimball says this about polygamy. Polygamy becomes the norm in the ancient world of the Near East. Even the Israelites stray from God's original design and adopt these cultural norms. At times we see God working within these fallen cultural practices like polygamy and concubines, but we never see God endorsing them as good. I mean, take for example, Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. My initial reaction is, bro, that is way too many anniversaries to remember. Like no one should have to do that. And yet we see with Solomon, we see with King David, we see with others that they practiced polygamy. But the Bible always, always identifies polygamy and the practice of polygamy as something negative. In fact, the Bible says that because of Solomon's polygamy, he was led away from the Lord. That because of David, King David's polygamy, it it led him to murder or to have an innocent man murdered. Now, as we fast forward to the New Testament, we see Jesus being questioned on the very topic of marriage. And Jesus knows Israel's history, having practiced some polygamy. He he knows the Greco-Roman culture that doesn't highly value women. And when he is asked about it, Jesus appeals to God's original Design. Look, look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two, not 700, the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, in in, in our culture right now, in the year 2022, our culture looks down on marital polygamy, as we should. But our culture also celebrates and endorses sexual polygamy. The reality is both marital polygamy and sexual polygamy are devastating and damaging to women, men, and children. It's why Erwin McManus says, You can have sex without giving love, but you can't have sex without giving a part of yourself. God's desire for sex is within the context of marriage, between one man, between one woman in marriage for a lifetime. That is God's design and Jesus affirms it. The second question that that you may be asking is, is the Bible against women serving in the church? Specifically in the New Testament, is the Bible against women serving in the church? What's really interesting in Romans chapter 16, uh, the apostle Paul who wrote Romans uh, in chapter 16, he gives his longest list of thank yous. He, He commends and appreciates and applauds more people in Romans 16 than he does anywhere else in his letters. In fact, He acknowledges and celebrates and commends 26 partners in the gospel. But did you know that over one third of them were women? 
You see, it's obvious that women were involved in the church, that they were serving and leading in the church. In fact, one of those that he mentions is in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Now, Andronicus, nobody debates whether that was a man's name. The question that many have wrestled with is, is Junia a woman's name or a man's name? In fact, some translators to make it sound more like a masculine name have added the letter S in older translations, have added the letter S. The problem with the name Junius, the masculine name Junius, is nowhere in the first century writings and and documents that we have do we ever see the name Junius. It just didn't exist. However, Junia, a woman's name, the female version of that name, that's all over the place in the first century. And so honest scholars look at this and they say, here Paul is acknowledging a man and a woman who are great among the apostles. And many have concluded this means that both Andronicus, a man, and Junia, a woman, were considered apostles in the early church. Now, what about those crazy passages that Paul mentions where he talks about women remaining silent? I want you to remember what Pastor Glenn said last Sunday. He said, never read a Bible verse. And it's obviously an exaggeration, but the principle and the point is this. Never read a Bible verse out of context. In fact, it doesn't matter what you're reading or what you're watching. You want to understand the context of what's going on around that. And so I want to read a passage to you that without the context could leave us thinking maybe the Bible is anti-women. Maybe there's no opportunity for women to serve in the church. But then I hope as we understand the context, we'll get a better understanding of what Paul is actually saying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, there were crazy things happening in the culture of that day that necessitated Paul writing some of these crazy sounding things. You see, 1 Corinthians, this letter, was written probably in the year 55 AD. And prior to writing this letter, the apostle Paul had visited Corinth, where this church community was, and actually had lived with them for about a year and a half, learning their culture, understanding the other religions that were surrounding their community. And it's obvious as you read 1 Corinthians that Paul had received a letter from this church really asking his his wisdom on how do they handle disruptions and issues that were going on in the church. One of those issues was some people were eating the Lord's Supper, were, were enjoying a feast together and others weren't being invited. Some were taking communion. They were having a little bit too much of that wine. They were getting drunk during communion and not able to participate in the worship services. And then there were groups of women that that were creating disruptions within the worship services. And so this church is asking Paul, how are we to proceed forward? 
Well, what was going on specifically with those women? We need to understand what was happening in the first century in Corinth at that time. You see, there were large groups of women that were converting to Christianity from the pagan worship to the goddess Artemis. And in fact, worship of the goddess Artemis was only something that women could do or castrated men. And it required prostitution. It required a lot of yelling and screaming and all kinds of wild things going on. And so here, Paul is actually offering this group of women and this specific church, he is offering them guidance that they desperately need. They're asking the question, how do we relate to Jesus in a way that's different than maybe how we related to Artemis? And it's clear if you look at the whole text of 1 Corinthians, that Paul was not saying that all women are supposed to be silent during worship services. Because just a few chapters before, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, but every woman who prays or prophesies, these are activities that a woman would lead within the church, that a person would lead within the church, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. And then a few verses later, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? You see, Paul is not even arguing whether a woman should pray publicly in the church, whether a woman should prophesy and share a message from God for the whole church. He's addressing the head covering issue. And so what did Paul mean? What did Paul mean by women should remain silent in the churches? Well, th there's at least two options. O option A is he's appealing to a common custom. You see, back in the day, the way anybody would learn was in silence. That, that whether you were in a Greek setting, whether you were in a Jewish setting with a rabbi, whether you were in some other kind of educational setting, the way that one would learn was in silence. It, in fact, the word silent in the 1 Corinthians 14 passage, it, it means to have a quiet demeanor for the purpose of learning. It, when, when Paul says they mu that women must be in submission, this, this literally means to take on the posture of a student and does not in any way infer that a woman has a lower status than a man. You see, in the first century, the reality was men were more educated than women. And so according to this common custom theory, Paul is merely appealing to the higher education of the husbands or the men in those congregations to answer questions for the women. Instead of creating a disruptive moment, he's appealing to the higher education of the men. New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, he, he makes a comment about this text. He says, Paul's two comments about silence are actually consistent then with the story and the plot of the Bible. Women who have always been gifted by God to speak for God and lead God's people were doing these things in Paul's churches. But women who had not yet learned the Bible or theology or had not yet learned to live a Christian life were not to become teachers until they had learned orthodox theology. What drives 1 Corinthians 14 is a principle that much of church tradition has nearly smothered when it comes to women. Learning precedes teaching. Now, option number two, when it comes to why would Paul 
call the women to remain silent in the churches is separate seating. So I want you to kind of transport back to your junior high days or your middle school days. And maybe you remember that very first middle school dance that you walked into and it was very clear, girls over here, boys over here. And it feels like there's about a mile in between them. Well, that's how in the first century, Jewish uh, people worship. They literally worship with men sitting on one side and women sitting on the other. And so some scholars have concluded that since that was a practice of Jewish worship, it's probably likely that that early Christian church adopted that and had women seated on one side and men on the other. And so it's very logical to think that if a group of women coming out of the pagan worship to the goddess Artemis, who, who are used to sort of yelling and screaming maybe during these pagan worship celebrations, that as they have questions about what's going on during a worship service that they would naturally yell to their husbands or to another man over there for clarification or possibly to each other. And you see, Paul here is just trying to keep the worship gatherings orderly and to keep them in such a way that mutually benefits everyone. And the third question, third question we're going to look at is this, how can women and men partner to build God's kingdom. You see, historically, Christian women and men have worked together to improve the lives of women. Did you know that Christian women and men in China helped put an end to the practice of foot binding, which, which was an attempt to make women's feet smaller, which was a common cultural practice so their husbands would be more attracted to them. Did you know that Christian women and men in India helped put an end to the cultural practice of widows who had lost their husbands having to die by suicide during their husband's funeral by throwing themselves on the pyre, which was the burning fire consuming their deceased husband's body. Christian women and men helped put an end to these practices that were disadvantaging and hurting women. And check this out. The secular sociologist and historian Rodney Stark, he, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he says this about Christianity in the first century. Christianity was unusually appealing to women because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. The early church attracted an unusual number of high status women. And this is why Peter, the apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus during his epic speech in Acts chapter two, at the beginning of the birth of the church and this Jesus movement, he, he quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel, who gave us a picture then that Peter affirms, a picture of what it will look like for women and men to build God's church, to advance God's kingdom by the Holy Spirit. He says these words. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. God's desire from the beginning of scripture all the way to the end, all the way up to this moment, is that he would use women 
and men to advance his purposes. And we together as women and men get to join God in that great effort.